All right, good evening, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapters 4 and 5, that's where we'll be tonight. Hebrews 4 and 5. We'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight, the time that we get in it, uh, to receive it with faith, mixing it with faith, as that'll be the focus of tonight. Uh, Lord, we've taken the time um, to do this, to worship you, to do anything, uh, to, to focus on you at the exclusion of all else in this world that we could be doing tonight. There's a lot of other things that could have drawn our attention away, but we set this time aside to hear from you. And so I, I pray that you'd help us to have ears to hear, um, that we our attention and our minds would be focused and sharp, and um, that you would speak to our hearts as Aaron prayed and as we always pray, um, that it would be mixed with faith, with belief, with understanding, with the, uh, a way to apply it, God, into our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the writer of Hebrews is continuing uh, his effort to slowly but surely take the nation of Israel, or any Hebrew for that matter, a believing Hebrew especially, someone who trusted in Jesus and has put their faith in him, to, to maintain that present course with Christ and to not feel that draw to go back to the law, go back to what they grew up with, but to understand that the, the relationship with Jesus is simply an, an evolution or the next step in their walk. It's a, there, there is no second or first, co- first covenant to go back to. This is a continuation. It's the new covenant. The old is, is gone. The new has begun. And there is no mixing of the two, and there is no going back to the first. And that, that's the tendency, and that's what they're struggling with. Now, we're not Hebrews. We're not Jewish people. But, boy, this helps us understand our faith immensely, I think. Especially when he talks about the Word of God being mixed with faith with some and not being mixed with faith by other people. And that's something that's on us. It's our responsibility to hear the word of God and to mix it with believing on our part. Um, It would take care of a lot of problems. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, now what's it there for? Because God brought us up to the Jordan River, to the promised land, and through unbelief, through uh, God's word not being mixed with faith, we rebelled and ended up walking around in the wilderness for 40 years. Therefore, Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, and he has said, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he, spoke, he, for has, uh, for he has spoken in a certain place um, of the seventh day, the, 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 the Sabbath day, in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying to David, or in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest by taking them over to the promised land, if that had been it, if that was the rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Therefore, uh, there, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. That's a big chunk that we took. It's the mixing of faith. He compares the nation of Israel and their belief in Jesus Christ, or their accepting of their Messiah, very similar to coming up to the Jordan River and either accepting God's Word that he's going to take them through it, that he's going to make this a a wonderful journey, that he's going to give them a promised land on the other side through faith, through just believing by stepping into the water and crossing over on dry ground or not. And he makes that comparison to the 
to our walk with Jesus. And he's concerned with and brings up that lots of people heard the exact same words, but some mixed it with faith and some didn't, and therefore it benefited some and it didn't benefit others. It, it was not on God's part that failed the individual. It was the individual's lack of faith or believing. So I want to take some time on that. Um, In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, I'll, try, I'll, I'll start with this. I'm doing them a little out of order than what I thought I was going to use. But <clears throat> Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, this is a series of cross-references I'm going to bring up because I want to drive home the point because that is one of the arguments in Christianity is, is faith or believing a work on our part for salvation? Well, the Bible's very clear on that. It isn't a, it isn't a theory. It isn't opposing views. The Bible's very clear that faith is not a work. In fact, several times in Scripture, he separates the two. This is work, and you can't do it. You can't get to heaven by works. You have to do it by Faith. And so he's excluded faith from works several times. So it isn't a work. It's as, it's as hard as falling down, you know. I don't have to do much effort to fall down. I just have to tip over and let gravity do the rest. There I go, you know. We were working on the roof up there, and a couple times you could feel yourself begin to slide, and I didn't have any effort at all in that. <laughs> it was going to go. We're Here we go, you know, kind of thing. Well, that's... That's it. It's simply believing God at his word. Several cross-references, I promise, so let me read them through you quick, to, through, to you quickly, okay? Romans 3.27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. It's different. Romans 4.5, but to him who does not work, but believes, two different things, on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Romans 9.32, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. Two different things. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. <laughs> Believing in Christ, the Hebrews needed to understand, is the entering in of that rest. The eighth day of creation was very similar to the seventh day. I don't know if I need to make a point of that or not, but it's identical. Nothing else happened the next day. Six days, God created everything, and on the seventh day, he rested. It's not like he got back to work on the eighth day. It just never started up again. He was complete. It was done. Okay? So that seventh day is very important. From the, from the very beginning of time, and that's what all the Old Testament is, and I think we'll demonstrate that tonight, is a pointing to a time when there's a rest. The, the seventh day that God took off from work and quit and stopped working and it was a complete done process, the seventh day, the Sabbath, is pointing to Jesus Christ. The rest that he talks about throughout the Old Testament, boy, we've got we've to get away from the world in Egypt and we've got to get into the promised land. Well, there was no rest in the promised land. You all know that. We had battle after battle after battle. It was a lot of effort and a lot of sweat and things going on there. God did all the work, of course, had all the victory, but there was still a lot more to do. And that's what the writer here is getting at. If that was the rest, if Joshua brought them into the land of rest, which was the conventional wisdom of the day, we've, we've retained rest. He says, and why did David talk about it so many years after that took place? If there didn't remain something bigger, that he's talking about something more. This is it, he's trying to tell them. He's slowly but surely taking them to the fact that Jesus is the rest. Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the promised land. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the law. Everything in the Old Testament and the law was pointing to him, and he's fulfilled that, and you have him now. There's nothing you could add to that. It doesn't make any sense to go back to that. you know. And so he's trying to help them with that. Mixing God's word with faith doesn't just stop with the gospel, though. A um, couple times as I was studying, it came up 
about people getting stuck, you know, in their walk with the Lord. They, be, they hit a plateau or they become stale or almost, in some cases, backsliding. They feel like they're backsliding, you know. Well, somewhere along the line, they've, they've stopped mixing God's word with faith, belief. And they've stopped changing. They've stopped being conformed into the image of Christ. There's that, there's that stall, you know. And I run into that a lot. And, and I'll use it as an example. When, when, it, when it comes to counseling people, when they want counsel, and I'll, and I'll say this as delicately as because I'm so good at delicate things. But every Sunday and Wednesday, we get a counseling session. That's what this is right here. You're in counseling right now. This is counseling. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, is using his sword, the word of God, to counsel us. And what happens when someone requests counseling, which is fine, there's times for that. What they want is a boutique counseling session. Catered, trimmed, and focused. Okay. But if I come in every Sunday and Wednesday to a Bible study where the Word of God is going to be taught, regardless of what the commentator is, it doesn't make any difference who it is. It doesn't matter what doesn't matter what conference you go to, who's the speaker. If they read the Word of God, you've got enough to get something. Even if they're off base, you can hold on to God's Word and the Holy Spirit can counsel you if you'll mix it with faith. And faith is believing it, not just agreeing with it, not just nodding heads, but immediately receiving it into your life and applying it. When I... Our problem is, well, this Hebrews 4 and 5 isn't my problem. It's not what I need. It's not what I'm focused on. My problem's this, and I thought maybe tonight God would speak to me in spite of your program and maybe cater it to my need and know this is exactly what you need tonight. All of us do. The Holy Spirit is very good at coordinating His Word with life events. Sometimes He gives us the answer before the crisis, And if we mix it with faith before the crisis, we do very well in the crisis. Sometimes he gives it to us right in the middle of the crisis, and if we receive it by faith and aren't blinded by emotions, we can actually do really well and come out of that crisis well. And even if it's post-crisis, even if it's after the events happen, God can come in with the soothing balm of his word, and if we receive it into our hearts and not reject it and say, well, where were you two weeks ago? But receive it, we can be touched and healed in some cases. If we mix it with faith, um, when it comes to God's word, it's, it, it's alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. We're going to read that here in a minute. Um, your marriage, I'm just going to pick on one counseling subject. Your marriage can be absolutely thriving if you'll receive God's word and believe it and mix it with faith. I'll give you an example. If I come up to you, Jerry, and tell you, you need to love your wife like Christ loves the church, and it doesn't matter what kind of battle axe you're married to, your job is to love her like Christ loves the church, because believe me, the church can be a battle, battle axe against Jesus sometimes. We're a naughty bunch. you know. So no matter what she does, love her like Christ loves the church. Wash her feet. Care for her. Gently wash her with the word of God. Pray for her. Be gracious and merciful to her, okay? You, submit to your husband as you would submit to Christ. If they would both, no, they're not in crisis, thank goodness. Or maybe they were and that was a divine thing, I don't know. If they would both hear that and receive it and mix it with faith, believing that that is the only solution for their marriage, then they will do great. God will do amazing works as Shelley works on what she's supposed to do and Jerry works on what she's supposed to do. And regardless of whether either of them are doing the right thing, if they do their part, there's hope. Now they both have to do it for it to really thrive. But that's not what they're worried about. They have to do it. Now here's the other thing. I'll give that same advice maybe to a couple and they'll look at me like I'm absolutely from the Stone Age. And temporarily, they'll have a common enemy, me, or his word. And they will align themselves beyond all their other problems that they've had and said, well, at least we know that was ridiculous. 
And they'll walk for a little bit together, a little bit longer. But because the word of God wasn't mixed with faith, that alliance won't last long. And pretty soon they're back at it. And they can't figure out why things aren't working in their marriage. Because there's only one solution for a healthy marriage. There's only one solution for raising godly kids. There's only one solution for walking this walk correctly. And that's God's word. And once you reject that, you have no other options. So when people hear the word of God and they reject it or they mix it with faith, it's a, a, it's a, a glaring contrast in their walk. You don't get to take from God's word some of it and mix it with faith and reject others. You cannot parse this out into what's, again, the word boutique keeps coming to mind, you know, a, a, a custom tailored faith for me. It's all or nothing. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the volume of the book speaks of him. And so you reject any part of this and you reject a part of Christ. And your walk, your faith becomes disjointed. It becomes fractured. It's a hard thing. As this writer tries to convince these Hebrews, would you please, when I read the, or when you read this and when you study this, mix it with faith because it's not going to do you any good unless you mix it with faith. You have to. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The second portion here, he says, you have to let God's word do what it does. You have to let it search you. You have to let it discover. You have to let it expose. I had a itchy eye thing. I thought maybe it was some sort of poison ivy was in my eyeball or something like that. And I just kept rubbing it. Jenny says, it's getting more swollen. and all. I said, It'll go away. It'll be fine. She goes, let me put some drops in it. I don't do well with drops. I can't hold my eye open to save my life. It just doesn't happen. I can see it coming. It's not my fault. I'm not afraid of the drop. My eye, I just have really good reflexes, I guess, because you ain't getting anything in there, you know? And I can open my eyes up underwater in a pool. It doesn't bother me. The chlorine hurts for a while, but after a while, you can see, and it's fine. Probably why I wear glasses, but no matter what you do, I can't get it in there. And so there's this tendency for me to know it's good for me, but I have a tendency to reject it because I just can't get past that reflex. You know, God's word is sharp. It is. It's supposed to be. It's not a hammer. It's a sword. And it's not a, it's not a Nerf football either. You know, it's not soft and squishy. It's sharp. It's meant to do a job. It's meant to come in. And get with surgical precision right to what hurts. To deal with it. To remove the cancer. To remove the whatever it is that's causing the pain or the problem. It's the holding still part on our part that's hard. And he says there, be diligent to enter that rest. Let God's word work in your life. Let it be uncomfortable. And accept that uncomfortable feeling as you feel like maybe you're being singled out or the spotlight shining awfully bright on me. If it does, it does. It's doing what it's supposed to do. In Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. It'll prosper. I'm not talking about money or wallets. I'm talking about, but maybe, maybe that's your problem. Maybe that's where you can't, you know, God says, no, I don't want, I want you to cut back on this and I want you to invest in this. And all of a sudden it does prosper you, but it could be health. It could be relationships. It could be just your spiritual well-being. Let it do what it's supposed to do. As God says, I am good at this. I am very good at what I do. I am the great physician. I am the, I am the counselor. 
I can do these things if you'll let me do these things. I can fix your marriage if you listen to me and do exactly what I tell you to do. I can't fix your marriage if you don't listen to me and you don't do what I tell you to do. I can't heal you. Because this is what I use to heal me. You're looking for option two. You're looking for door number two or you know, plan B or whatever, plan C. Give me all my options. God says, I've only got one. It's my word and you need to do it. That's how you operate. That's how it works. That's what I made it for. Marriage was my idea, my design, my plan. It only works one way. You cannot make it work any other way than the way I tell you how it works. That's how it has to be. And I will prosper it. It's a beautiful thing when we surrender these things. It's a good song we sang tonight. Surrender all. I surrender all. Easily said. Mix that with faith. Mix that song with faith and actually do it. I want him to cut between the soul and the spirit. We don't spend a lot of time on that. We understand joint and marrow and kind of understand that's a surgical thing. But between the soul and the spirit is between emotionalism and the things of the spirit. There's soulish worship and there's spiritual worship. There's two different kinds. Soulish is, I got so moved by the music tonight, it brought me to tears, but might not have been spiritual worship for you. It just was a real snappy tune that you, that you liked, and that's my favorite, and I could sing loud with it. And that's emotionalism. And the others is spiritual. There are times when I'm emotionally attached to Jenny, and there's times when I'm spiritually attached to Jenny. It's very important. You can tell the difference between the two, you know. It's very important to have that with our Lord. It's very important to have that relationship with God's word. It isn't a book of sayings and, and uh, proverbs necessarily or, or Confucianisms, you know. I don't even know what they call those. but You can't just piece it apart and take it apart. It's a whole document written by one author. Meant for us to do well describing one person, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us. You're not hiding anything from me, he says. I can see all these things through his word. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to that throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lots of different priests, and we'll talk about that in chapter 5 more than anything, but I want to hit on it a little bit. Um, I can identify with you as a broken man, right? Um, I struggle with the same things everybody in this room struggles with. I just get up to teach. That's just what God's called me to do. It doesn't mean that my life is any more organized or arranged. I, I mean, I need to be ahead. I need to be winning. I need to have victory in my life. What's the point? If I'm up here saying, I don't know how to do it either, but I hope it works for you. You know, I need to be an example. But what he's talking about is different. He's talking about a high priest, Jesus Christ, who never sinned. Who was in all points tempted, but without sin. And he still sympathizes with our weaknesses. Because he became flesh, because he dwelt among us, because he went through the growing up stages that we have to go through. He went through uh, all the way to 33 or about around that age. He knows the battles. He knows rejection. He knows unbelief. He knows blame. He knows being misunderstood. He understands what it feels like to be accused of something that he's innocent of, you know, wrongly accused. He's very acquainted with that. So he can sympathize with some of the things that we go through. And he can sympathize with our flesh and the weakness of it. And he wants us to know that. And the writer of Hebrews wants him to know that. He may be the high priest now, but he can still sympathize with us. I can't say that my circumstances are more complicated than God's solutions, is the idea. I can't say, yeah, well, I know God's word says this, but my situation is so much more, so much deeper. He says, no, you've got a high priest in Jesus Christ who understands. Now, maybe it wasn't written down just like what you went through, but for the most part, he understands it all, or has gone through it, and it wasn't written down. None of my problems are unique to me, and none of your problems are unique to you. We've all gone through these things. And Jesus can sympathize with us. He wants to sympathize. 
He wants us to boldly come to the throne of grace that we can obtain mercy. There is nothing else you have to do. Yeah, we've talked about the Sabbath and how the seventh day was really Christ. Okay, Jesus is our Sabbath, and so there is no Sabbath to fulfill. Christ fulfilled the Sabbath, so that's a whole other teaching in and of itself. But so, so were all the sacrifices. The whole process of worshiping God was all designed as a mock-up and, a, and a, a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. For example, when they built the tabernacle, he told Moses, here's how I want it made, God said, and he showed him the pattern from heaven. And when you look at the tabernacle, it's designed just like how we see it in the book of Revelation and from some of the prophets. You've got the holy of holies, and they've got the holy place. And you've got the, the lamp stand with the seven uh, can, you know, candles or uh, lamps on it. And you've got the, the bread over on the right side. You've got the altar of sin, incense in the middle. You've got the mercy seat on the other side of this blue curtain that nobody can get to because the blue curtain blocks it. And there's a distance. That, you know, the whole thing was a mock-up to show. And you've got one high priest that goes in and takes the sacrifices. I mean, there's a lot of things going on, others. But for the one sacrifice for the sin of the nation, I'm just going to focus on that one. The high priest comes up and lays hands on the head of the goat or the sheep and the lamb and, and passes the sins on to and makes this lamb the substitution for me. In other words, I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one that deserves to be sacrificed and killed. I, I, I've got the death penalty rescue, but I'm passing my sin onto this animal so that this animal can substitute itself for me. And then the animal gets sacrificed, and you're supposed to feel bad about that. You are. I mean, this is a horrible thing. He didn't do anything wrong. I did. And yet, I'm so thankful, you know, kind of thing. And the whole thing was designed, this whole setup, the high priest, the way the tabernacle was, and then eventually the temple was the same way. And this was going on constantly for all the other sins too. People would bring their go. You had to think about it. Sins actually cost you a lot of money back then. You know, your, your little, uh, you know, fling that you had or whatever is going to cost you a couple goats. Was it worth it to get right with God? Ah, oh boy, you had to bring these goats in. It's like 50 bucks here, you know, and back then, a lot of money back then. And, and you lay your hands on them, and these are for the sins. My sins, you, they're by substitution, the atonement. And then the blood gets shed, and, and you're relieved of that burden, of that sin. Now, now you go home, you're like, boy, this week I'm really going to work on it because I need all my goats, you know? I really want to be holy. It, it costs, it's, there's, a, there's a cost to it. And this would happen continually for hundreds and hundreds of years, but none of it. It was all a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we passed our sins onto this man, Jesus Christ, to be the substitution for our sins. And although it was me that should be on the cross, I'm substituting. He's taking my, that's what propitiation means. He's taking my place. And he took my place on the cross and all my sins, past, present, and future. And it was all done once for all. It's finished. It's complete. I feel horrible about it, and I plead the blood of Jesus. And I, Some say, well, once you ask for forgiveness, there's this, we like to do this. I don't know what it is about Christianity. We like to argue about everything. You don't need to ask for forgiveness anymore because you already asked for forgiveness. And once you've asked for forgiveness, you don't have to ask for forgiveness anymore. So when you ask for forgiveness, it's like a lot. I don't think it is. I don't think you're right there. And I'll tell you why. Jenny made some vows at the altar that she's going to stay married to me no matter what. Now, I don't walk up to her after I've sinned and say, remember your vows. No, you apologize. You say, I'm sorry. I can't believe I was such a jerk and such a creep. Now, I'm not, I don't have to do that. to Now her vows are, no, she's going to keep her vows whether I do that or not. The cross works whether I confess it or not, because what if we forget? But you still, because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, because I have a relationship with my wife, you still apologize. You still feel bad. You still want to talk to him about it and say, I'm sorry, you know? And so I think it's okay to confess and to ask, would you forgive me, Jesus, for doing that again? I, I don't know why I keep falling into that. I just, I, I'm sorry, you know? And he doesn't scold me. Don't do that again. Don't quit asking me for forgiveness. No, it's a, we're talking, you know? I think that's important. To have that. He sympathizes with us. He loves us. Verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men 
in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. He's trying to show how much better this high priest Jesus is compared to the Arianic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood is. So he's making the direct comparison here. You've, you, you have a man, and we've talked about this, who had to offer up his own sacrifices before he could stand holy before God to offer up your sacrifices. There's a process, you know. I've got to wash. I've got to cleanse. I've got to confess. I've got to pass my sins on to animals. Now that that's all done, I'm all clean up and ready to go. Now you can bring me your problems, and I'll do that for you as well, because that's what I do. With Christ, he doesn't have to do that. There were no sacrifices that needed to be made for Jesus. He doesn't have to get right before God. He is right before God. He's righteous. He's holy. And so he's trying to explain to them, this is such a better high priest. All the man high priests that came before Christ were just pointing us to the high priest who would never need to offer sacrifices for himself. Okay. And we have him. He's so much better. I think you could probably write that after every one of these chapters. Jesus is so much better than chapter 1. He's so much better than chapter 2. He's so much better than those old priests that you seem to want to go back to with your little lambs. Come on, I just feel better when I kill animals. He's like, it doesn't make sense anymore. You've got a great high priest who was the lamb, who is the high priest, who is the temple, who is the Sabbath, who is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. You're complete in him. There's nothing to go back to, you see. It's all finished. Um, Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, But it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. When the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He says, I'd love to get into Melchizedek, but I don't think you can handle that right now. You just have to understand Jesus is of that order. He's not of the Arianic priesthood. He's not of the Levitical priesthood. He's of a much better order, the order of Melchizedek. You see... Well, the story of Melchizedek we'll get into. It's in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Abram, at the time, had just rescued Lot, defeated a bunch of kings, you know, um, and miraculously uh, did a wonderful work. And at the, at the end of the battle, some kings come before him, uh, different, different kings, and, and they're all getting excited and thanking him, and, oh, thank you for saving these people. All of a sudden, in verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. This this mysterious person shows up. you know. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him a tithe of all, or a tenth of all. He tithes to him. you know. Now later on we get some explanation as to uh, and, and, so, and we'll get that into chapter 7 and chapter 11 of Hebrews also, but who this Melchizedek is. Some say it's a, it's, it's a, Christoph, it's a, a period of Christ in the Old Testament. Probably not, um, but it could be. Um, they tell us that he's of this order. Jesus is of this order. When Abraham <laughs> believed God, God told him he's going to have a son, and he believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Just the belief, just the faith. This is way before the law. This is way before Exodus, way before the mountain, way before the Ten Commandments, right? Abram just believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. That's the kind of 
If you want to call it religion, that's the faith that was back then. And this Melchizedek was the high priest back then. We don't even really have much to go on him. But we've got this man who just believed God by faith and this Melchizedek. And there's this beautiful relationship between all that happening. And then we had problems, (laughs) a lot of problems. And to keep Israel in check and to show the world that they needed a savior because everybody thought they were right in their own eyes. He gave them a law saying, look at these 10 commandments. This should tell you that you're in trouble. And that's all it was for. It was a tutor. It was a teacher to bring everybody who ever read it into the understanding. I need a savior. I broke the 10 commandments. Now what? You need Jesus, this high priest, this order of Melchizedek, and he's going to pay the price for all your sins. And, and the way that applies to you and the way you get that to work in your life is by faith, just like Abraham. And what he's trying to tell the nation of Hebrew is, Hebrews, this, these people reading is, we're, we don't want to go back to here from Jesus to the law, going all the way back to the way it was started with Abraham believing God by faith, having this order of Melchizedek. We're not doing Levitical priests. We're not doing Arianic priests. We're not doing the law. We're not doing the Ten Commandments. We're going all the way back to the beginning, how this all started with Abraham believing God by faith, like you need to believe God by faith. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, you see. It's still our problem to this day. We still get lured by that. There's something about the structure, this middle part, this law, this the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the rituals, the robes, the, the things about this, something about the structure draws us. And I don't know what it is. I guess we love pain and suffering. I guess we don't like freedom. I guess we don't like what Christ offers us, which is you're free. You're forgiven. You can rest. You can rest like Abraham rested in his faith in God. You can rest in your faith. There is no more works to be done. This is gone. It's done. It's past. It's fulfilled in Christ. He's trying to tell them Jesus is better. You trying to blend these two together, well, it's perversion. It doesn't look right. It doesn't smell right. It doesn't sound right. It makes you feel bad inside. It turns everything that Christ sets you free from into this Well, the yuck that you felt before, you know, the guilt and the shame never seemed to quite go away. You weren't really sure, you know, like David, I I know that if the blood of bulls and goats, if that's what you really wanted, I'd give you that. But I know what you're looking for is a broken and contrite heart. Even David knew in the midst of the law that he's supposed to be having this faith like Abraham had and was looking forward to that time when Jesus would come and the Savior would come, not knowing his name, but from his lineage, and he was going to bring that into play and bring it back to the way it's supposed to be. So important we understand that, to have that freedom. Now he quoted, uh, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn, I will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There will never, ever be another high priest. They used to cycle these guys in and out based off of age, based off of their schedule. You know, you're on a month, off a month, that kind of thing. You're the high priest this year. You're the high priest next year, so on. Jesus is never, ever going to not be the high priest. He's always the high priest. We never have to deal with anybody other than him. It's done. This is supposed to bring them relief. Now understand what he's doing. He's dismantling what they grew up with. He's dismantling what they were taught from birth. This is how you have to approach God. You have to approach God this way. And I understand that, he says. But Jesus is how we approach God now. And it's so much better because when he died, he ripped that veil in the tabernacle, ripped that veil in the temple from top to bottom, and it was never meant to be mended again. What kept us from going through the curtain to the Holy of Holies where God sits on his throne, what was our sin? And Jesus says, nope, no more. I'm a high priest that doesn't have anything to offer. I can boldly walk in and come out, and you can come in and out with me. It was unheard of. You know how many people saw the inside of the Holy of Holies in the nation of history? I I mean, I couldn't tell you, but there were millions who didn't because they couldn't. You're not allowed. You're not qualified. You're not chosen. You're not picked. Jesus is saying, all that's done, anybody and everybody 
can go in now and receive that grace and mercy. Don't put up that veil in your life. Satan wants you to mend that veil. He wants you to make that or feel that distinction or that separation from God. He wants you to feel like you can't approach, you can't come near, you have to get right first. You have to to do some mourning and some self-beatings over here for a while before you can come in here. At least make an effort to look poor and meager before you walk into my presence, is what Satan's whispering in everybody's ear. And God, Jesus says, no. And I don't think the word boldly means arrogantly, but it certainly means with confidence in Christ. I can confidently, boldly walk into the throne because I know that Jesus said I can. And that is hearing what he said, mixing it with faith, and I walk in because he told me to. Not because I feel worthy or because I feel entitled. Because I mixed his word with faith and I'm going in boldly and so can we. All of us can. So much victory. So much peace. There's a lot of turmoil in the world. Sundays we've been talking about that and trying to mesh it up with God's word the best we can. But it isn't meant to get us stirred up and anxious and have the hair on the back of our neck stand up constantly. Oh boy, you know. What's happened next? I don't know. But I bet God will take us through the next day. I bet I'm going to walk just fine. I'm going to listen to his word. And sometimes his word comes before the crisis and tells me to do something and to prepare to do whatever. And if I mix it with faith and do it exactly like he said, I bet I'll be okay when that thing comes down, goes down. I bet I will. It's amazing the, uh, the common message I'm hearing coming from people that haven't colluded together, but they're all saying the same thing. So many people are saying the same thing about what's happening in the world right now. And I, I don't want to put too far, I don't want to say it. But there's so many people with the exact same heart and the exact same idea and the exact same path to move forward through the next few years. I think it's interesting that there's this common understanding in people's hearts what's coming next and what they need to do. And a lot of people dismiss it. Maybe you're one of those people that just tries to dismiss it. That's not, no, that's just me being fearful. That's just me being paranoid. Or it's your heavenly father saying, I'm giving you lots of notice to kind of be ready. And I want you to be ready. Now I'm talking physically, but it can be spiritually too. I want you to get ready spiritually. I want you to work on your quiet times now. So when, if things get hard, it's, it's not foreign to you. It's not, what do I do? Or how do I, I have so much I want to teach you, child, you know, uh, to prepare your heart, to get you ready for, for, for walking by faith and, and, to, and, to, and being such a great light and, and witness for me in these last days. I've got things I want you to do. I've got, got missions for you, you know. I'd like to train you up now, you know. I hope that we hear and that we obey and we listen and we do, you know. Um, one of the first things we did, well, I better see where am I? Yeah, that's a good spot to do it. One of the first things we did when we started this church here, when we began to do the Bible study, we went to the theater and we put up, you know, how they have ads in the theater and we had this scrolling scripture that would scroll. It was a little creepy, I guess. At the, now that I look back on it, because the guy, the company had to do and had to read the script and he read it like it was... Like you're walking into a doomsday movie kind of thing. So he's like, so I'll read it like, like it sounded in the theater and I'll read it how I thought it was going to sound. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. And it gets on going like that. And people are like going, I just wanted to see Snoopy or whatever it is. You know, it was a little weird. Here's what I, here's what I meant. Here's how it was supposed to read. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not yet seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows 
with the increase of this from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The whole section of Scripture talks about how um, those were a shadow of things to come. The festivals, the new moons, the Sabbaths, the dietary restrictions, all the things that we had going on you know, in the Old Testament, in that, in that law period of time, was all meant to foreshadow Christ. But now Christ has come, the one who casts the shadow. And don't go back to those things. That's why I think Paul wrote Hebrews is because in reading from his letter to the Colossians, it's almost exactly what he's saying here. There is a tendency for us to go back to just rules and regs and, 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 and do's and don'ts. And, and, and that's fine. I mean, I don't want you to sin against God, but he's saying, don't let, that's not your holiness. That's not your righteousness. The righteousness that you have is in Christ. If there's things that are pleasing to God, we should do those things. If there's, if there's things that are offensive to God, we shouldn't do those things. But we shouldn't do those things out of love. And we should do those things out of love because you love him, you know, not because you're afraid you're going to lose your salvation or, or, or whatever. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's all been fulfilled, all of it. Now, this gets a little hard here, and I'll try not to ha- end on a hard note. I don't want to do that. That's no fun. For though by this time, the writer here says, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles and the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use or exercise have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He's calling them out on their kind of stuck, which is what I was getting at the beginning of this. You seem stuck, he says. You seem like you've stopped maturing. You're you're still on the bottle, you know. And by now you ought to be preparing the meals, not waiting for someone to heat up the milk, put it in a bottle and stick it in your mouth. You ought to be able to prepare it and serve it at this point. But you're not, he says. That was concerning to him. There was an expectation on his part, and I believe on God's part, that there is some maturity, some growth, that needs to be taking place in all of our lives. So I'm going to try not to end harshly on this. I'll, I'll read the, the scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, 2, or verses 1 and 2, excuse me. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, he says. You still can't eat it. You still can't chew. And you ought to be able to by now. 2 Peter 1.3, as his divine power has given us to all things that pertain to life and godliness and through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, Jesus. So as I was struggling with how not to end on a, you know, come on guys, get a fork and knife, you know, kind of thing. I was listening to a podcast today and I listened to a few of them and I won't tell you which one it was, but he was talking about a guy who froze in fear in combat. And, and I think that's what happens to us. So I'm going to give us all the benefit of the doubt in, our, in, our, in, in why we're stalled or why we're stuck if we are. He's used to kicking down a door and clearing a room and having the guys coming behind him. And there's, there's a way you do that. There's a way you go through. And he says, I've done it a thousand times. And he says, this is the first time I was ever frozen. Because, and here's where it helps us. I kicked the door down. Two bullets hit the wall beside me. I stopped that guy killed him, but I couldn't figure out how to clear the room. It was a big, huge open room in one of the palaces over there. And there was a balcony all the way around and every door was open. So every door shots had been fired. So everybody, everything's a danger. There's a glass wall, dark on the outside, lights on the inside. I can't see out, but anybody outside can see me. He says, I just froze. 
I could not figure out the problem. I didn't know how to take the first bite. I think that's where we get into our problems when we get stuck in our walk with Jesus. Whatever it is that you're up against, whatever the, is the difficulty is, whatever the problem is, some people just can't figure out. I don't even know where to take the first bite. And it paralyzes us. It frees us too big of a problem. The only solution I can come up with is to back out, and that's not an option. I've got to go forward, but I don't know how. And I, and I don't know that I have a perfect answer for you, but I do t- at least take a bite. You'll either take the wrong bite and learn that's not how to eat the apple. I need to try it a different way. Or you'll hit it, and you'll start the process. You know, Some of you have big problems. Some of us have huge things going on in our lives, and we're not sure exactly how to conquer these things. It's paralyzing to us. I want to grow. I want to get past this, but I don't know what to do. And I'm just encouraging you, take that step. And that's what happened. He says, one of the guys came from behind me, a guy from Delta Force, tapped me on the shoulder. He says, go right, go right, go right. And he, t- he told the guy, he wasn't Delta Force. He was a ranger. He goes, wait. He told, you, you don't tell those guys to wait. He says, wait. He goes, I can't believe I told him to wait. But he did. He waited. He says, I don't know if I was frozen for two seconds or 15 seconds, but I knew eventually I took that next step. And then I just flowed like water all the way through. It just worked perfectly. I just want to encourage you in that. To just go, to get in there, to get into the problem to go right into it and take that first bite and get unstuck from whatever you're stuck from, you know, and, 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 and it may be the wrong bite, but you'll know how to take the next bite after that then is the idea, but it's going to get eaten. The apple's going to get eaten if you keep working at it, you know, and keep moving through that problem. Take that first bite. And that's, I wanted to leave on a positive note. Hopefully that was, um, Paul says, you need to start chewing, you're expected to chew. You're expected to prepare to be able to read the Word of God and, and, and to disseminate it yourself and to be able to give it out to other people. We want to get to that place. I think most of us are. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your Word. Um, you ran through a lot of things tonight in these two chapters, encouraging specifically Hebrews to trust in Jesus for their salvation and Him only and to not add anything to it or take away from it to understand it better, that he's completed everything, that he's fulfilled everything. There's nothing to go back to or add to him. He is the fulfillment of all things. And we're in him and we're complete in him and our righteousness is his righteousness that's been imputed to us and so we're set. So we thank you for that tonight, first of all. Now God, we know that your heart is for us to be conformed into your image and that comes by reading your word, believing it by faith and applying it to our lives and and then begin to work through these things and to become more like Jesus each and every day. And so God, help us with that as you call us to believe you and how easy it is. You're always for us, God. So we lift up our problems to you collectively. We know we have individual problems. We lift those up to you quietly in our own hearts to you, God, things that we're afraid to take bites of, things we're afraid to tackle but we want to because we know you want to. And it's, a, it's glaring, obviously, in our walk with you, and it needs to be dealt with. And so, God, we lift it up to you and pray that you'd help us to take that next step, God. Show us in your word where we need to go. Show us what we need to do next. And uh, we pray that you'd fulfill and complete the work that you've begun in us, as you promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good night.